basically language is this phenomenal uh, nexus of culture and grammar and semiotics and it's so complicated and 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 so engaged with who we are with our identity this identity that we've constructed that we don't survive well without it especially those of us who've learned a language if we were forced to start speaking another language right now and never be able to use our native language which is the case of many people in the world uh, it would be it would be devastating to our psyche Welcome to The Story of Language, an original podcast series about language, linguistics, cognition, and culture. My name is Christian Saunders, and I'm an English teacher. And throughout this series, I will be in discussion with Dan Everett, linguist, anthropologist, philosopher, and author. In this episode, we talk about endangered languages. I ask why languages are important. What is lost when a language disappears? The cultural and economic factors behind language loss? And the truth about the best way to stop languages from disappearing? If you would like to contact us, you can find us on Twitter at Story of Language, or you can send us an email at storyoflanguage at gmail.com. This is episode 9 of The Story of Language. A few years ago, I was asking myself the the serious question, um, why why is it important to protect um, other languages, you know? Um, And and, and I was out at a bar having drinks with a, a... one of, a teacher who teaches Galician, which is the local language here. And, yeah. a, and I, I asked her a genuine question. I wasn't trying to be rude or, or anything. My genuine question was, well, you know, if, if Galician disappeared one day, I don't really see the problem because, you know, you can just speak Spanish or just speak English and you will still be able to communicate. And she got really offended by the question. Um... And, and since then, you know, it's it, well, I, I still have curiosity about this question. I, I'm wondering how you feel about the need to protect languages. I mean, I think one way to ask it is <clears throat> what difference would it make to, to us if English disappeared and we were forced to learn Chinese? When I was a translator, uh, a Bible translator, the motivation behind that was that even if you spoke other languages, your emotions and your um, deepest feelings were expressed in your native language. But if you had another native language, um, that would be fine. Endangered languages in all languages represent to us are the equivalent of, you know, enormous libraries of information that have been accumulated, that has been accumulated over time through the deep experiences of a people and a culture. It's not just that we lose a particular computational code for getting the same thoughts across, but that we have, through our languages, classified nature in a particular way. We have encoded all of our experiences of a a rich ancient culture in that language, and uh, its loss is irreplaceable. So not only do we feel in the language of our mothers, but those languages account for aggregated information that is of great great importance to people who want to understand our species and not merely the languages themselves. There's a lot more in an endangered language than just the language. Well, I'd definitely like to get a little bit deeper uh, into that um, shortly, but um, I mean, of course, I, I totally agree that that kind of obligating adult, you know, speakers who already have a, a first or a second language, obligating them to learn a new language because their original language dies out. I understand that that's a well, that's a different case. But I'm thinking about more, you know, when languages die off over generations, 
for example, maybe this will happen here where I live, that in 10 generations, Galician will die and everyone will speak Spanish. And, you know, I, I'm, I was genuinely curious about what would be lost by that if, if, if the point of language is just communication. Well, again, what, what would be lost is all the ways of, um, you know, so for example, in, in some languages, um, there is information about in the very words and in expressions that are used about agricultural cycles or calendars or ways of keeping track of time, different numerical possibilities. Um, and when these are lost, even though the speakers are still communicating fine, all the knowledge of that language that was encoded in the very language itself is gone. And so this can't be replaced. On the other hand, people decide to switch languages for a variety of reasons. The most powerful one in my experience is economic. So if the children uh, don't find economic advantage in speaking their parents' language, chances are they won't. Uh, and you see this in any time of immigration, you know, when when Italians and Germans came to the U.S., a major part of the early U.S. population, Irish and others, they their children didn't continue speaking their native languages, the, their parents' native languages. They switched to English because the economic advantages were all in speaking English. I mean, that that's a huge part of it. That's one of the concerns I have with um, a lot of the revitalization efforts. There are very few stories of successful language revitalization in the world. Once it's lost, aside from Hebrew and a couple of other cases, it's pretty much lost. Well, um, th this is, again, this is something else I, I really wanted to talk about. Um, and in fact, I, I saw some research recently that showed that after just three generations of Spanish immigrants living in America, uh, only 3% of them could could speak Spanish or, or understand Spanish. So I think it's shocking how quickly um, it happens, like in the case of uh, emigration or, or immigration. Well, when I went to, you know, in, in elementary school, 70% of my uh, school was probably Spanish speaking in the home in Southern California on the Mexican border. But, but all of my friends who were Mexican Americans spoke perfect English. I mean, the, the thing that used to shock me when we were playing football or something is they would switch to Spanish and I didn't know what, what the hell they were doing. And I really wanted to know, I felt like they had a real leg up on, on me cognitively. I mean, they could speak what anything I could say, plus they could say all this other stuff. But, um, you know, I, I don't think that the motivation to continue Spanish another generation or two is really there you you see it i mean all my all my um all the friends i went to school with still speak spanish fluently but i don't know how many of their children do so um if we could just go back a little bit to talk about this this knowledge that's contained in in, in languages and you know you sort of mentioned a few things specifically like uh, maybe specific ways of doing agriculture or things like that um but is is because a lot of that knowledge is obviously ancient, perhaps, as you said, in encoded in the language from, from, from generations, has, has a lot of that information, is it not kind of superseded by, I don't know, by modern science? Like, like is that information still valuable to us? Oh, yes. I mean, um, David Harrison in his books on endangered languages has documented several cases of of knowledge that has not been superseded. But if you take the Pitaha, for example, uh, in the Amazon, they know the name of every plant and um, animal that's in the Amazon. And I have, um, you know, I have gotten words for them that I didn't understand. And then when I finally figured it out, it was an animal that was claimed to be extinct for over almost 100 years. And they brought me one to show that me that it's not extinct. So, so all of this knowledge is is lost if they just suddenly switch to Portuguese. All this, all this ability to talk about these plants, the flora and fauna of the Amazon, and I'm forgetting their, you know, forget the literature, the literature, the poetry, all of these things 
are vital. And if it's an oral culture, you lose all of this. You lose all these stories. You lose all these beliefs and ways of uh, dealing with grief and dealing with the problems of our species. But you lose just factual knowledge that if Pitaha weren't spoken tomorrow, then that entire region of the jungle, we would have huge knowledge gaps. If people would take the time to um, write down what the Pitaha know, I mean, I've done a lot, but I haven't, I'm not an ethnozoologist and I haven't taken the time to do some of the other research that would be interesting. Um, but this knowledge is encoded in their language. It will never be superseded. I mean, unless, unless I'm, you know, scientists speaking Portuguese or English learn all these plants and animals and all their functions, but they're not going to do that from one day to the next. This knowledge has been aggregated over generations. We, we, we were talking a little bit about this um, during the episode about linguistic relativity, about how it seems that maybe humans and not just humans, but all animals have certain categories that just seem to be maybe, well, I mean, I hate to use the word innate, but, but for example, you know, we don't put birds and trees in the, in the same category. We know that somehow they're different, but you know, for example, do the Pidahan perhaps put things together or separate things in a way that we wouldn't in English? Oh yeah, I mean, this is very common. Uh, there was a doctoral dissertation uh, done at uh, the university in Brazil that I taught at, Unicamp, back in the 80s when I was there on ethno-ornithology, um, which the, it was a combination linguistics biology PhD. And he showed that the system of bird classification among the YMP is very different from um, the kinds of classifications used by Western um, ornithologists. So birds were not classified based on their anatomy, but based on the food they ate. And, and this was very interesting. So that whole classes of birds that were found by the people to, to eat the same kinds of seeds, to, to, to use the same kind of environment, were classified together as what we would call a species. We've chosen anatomy and, and more recently evolutionary history to be the basis for classifying uh, animals. But they chose behavior instead of innate physiological characteristics. And this leads to, so you can't know where to put a bird unless you know where it eats, what it eats and where it, it lives and that sort of thing. And, and, you know, if you need to eat birds to make a living, um, that's great information to have. And it's built right into the language. Wow. That, <laughs> that, that, that actually, I suppose, just exposed, it exposed a massive, uh, you know, kind of cognitive bias that I have towards, you know, towards classifying animals. Yeah, based on, as you said, based on their, their physiology. Whereas that, I mean, that's just an arbitrary classification, really, isn't it? You can use any number of classifications, what's useful to you. I mean, we want to know certain things that our classification reveals to us. Uh, and, and research on the evolutionary history of animals is aided by a classification that groups them physiologically. But if that's not your interest, if your interest is in knowing how to find them and knowing what they'll taste like <laughs> and these sorts of things, you're going to use a totally different system of classification. And it takes a huge amount of knowledge to come up with this system. You, you said something earlier about how a lot of these these languages, especially very small languages, you know, in in kind of remote places, they've they've never been written down, and this to to me the question becomes: Well, does that not mean that a lot of information has kind of been already lost because you know maybe certain generations just don't pass on certain types of knowledge? Um, I mean, are are cultures that have writing at an advantage when it comes to, to, to well, when it comes to, to knowing stuff? Um, oral histories, I mean, the Bible, for example, was for centuries uh, simply transmitted orally. Um, a lot of the founding, you know, stories of religions that are written today and, and also knowledge of medicine, these things were transmitted orally. But for the Pitaha, in which every day requires interaction with nature and hunting and fishing and classification, uh, this knowledge is just as strong as it has always been because children are learning from their parents when they go out there. 
And in fact, when they ask me the names for things, such as they'll give me the name for a plant uh, in their culture and they'll tell me what it's used for. Uh, so they'll show me one vine and say, you know, this is the name of this is X. And then they tell me that if I beat this vine and get it really get the fibers really exposed and put it in the water, it will release a chemical that will deprive the fish of oxygen and they'll come to the top and you can scoop them up. And everybody knows this and they ask me what it is and I have, you know, just in English, I might, I call it a vine and every vine that they show me, I just call it a vine. And this is just bizarre to them that I can, I don't know that it's like calling every red thing a tomato. <laughs> Oh, I, I suppose I suppose it is exactly like that. And I mean, so, sometimes I question uh, my own usefulness as an individual in, in the modern world, because, you know, I think in, in, in a modern world, in a big society, um, you have so many specialist kind of roles. And for example, if, if, if I was to be the last human on earth for some reason, like I have no idea how how escalators work. I have no idea how to do kind of like, I, I wouldn't know how to make electricity and do all of this stuff that I just take for granted. I don't have that knowledge personally. No, I mean, if you if you watch any of the survival programs like Alone, I mean, I like to watch some of these survival programs because, you know, I had to do that for so long. And, um, you know, people get the idea, I'll make a little boat. Well, it's really, really complicated to do that. A canoe like the people make um, takes a long process and lots of knowledge of wood and its properties and which wood is best. And there's all kinds of knowledge. You know, uh, Richardson and Boyd, two anthropologists uh, whose work has been extremely influential uh, in my thinking and that of many others, you know, just talked about all the knowledge that's, that exists in, say, a kayak. You cannot build a kayak just by looking at one. Uh, you need a lot of instruction and a lot of experience to do that. But it looks simple, right? Just some wood with some skin tied across it. But um, all this knowledge is encoded in the language and transmitted by oral tradition. And, and in our own societies, yeah, we don't know how to make our Our societies are so technologically complex that we don't know how to make a computer. We don't know how to make headphones. We don't know how to make paper. We don't know how to make pencils. I just bought a book on, on the history of paper, you know, and I mean, we learn a little bit about this in school, but I still think the most important technological achievement in the history of our species is the book. And there's a huge amount of technology to making a book. And it's the one place that you can read sustained arguments about specific topics and come away with a fairly complete knowledge of that topic. You can't get it from, from movies. Yeah, we all depend on each other. The society in which, we're, in which we're born is fundamental to our knowledge of the world. I'm kind of wondering now, th thinking more about what you're saying, I'm wondering if in fact, you know, small kind of tribal groups who they maybe have more limited knowledge, but they have more knowledge about things that are necessary for survival. Um, it's probably more likely that, you know, in a catastrophic event, that they're the ones that are going to survive. Uh, and all of us with all of our technology are not going to do very well at all. I mean, if, if all technology were ended tomorrow, hunter-gatherer groups would not even be affected. Um, you know, all, all electronic-based technology, they would be fine. I was just thinking the other day that, you know, when I used to spend more than a year at a time without news of the outside world um, among the Pitahas in the Amazon, wouldn't that be nice right now? I would just be there um, eating fish as normal. I wouldn't know about this um, pandemic. It would never come there and affect me. I mean, it's highly unlikely that it would be there. But the only way they're going to get it is if some idiot white person takes it to them and that will happen. I mean, it happened throughout the Americas. It's happened in lots of places. Every person knows how to make what every other person makes. So there's nobody in the, in the Pitaha, for example, who is, who is known for making things that are in need throughout the society that, that nobody else can make. Um, so there's no economy from specialized knowledge because everybody has the same knowledge. It, it's possible because they get by a much simpler level. They don't need the level of technology that we do to have the same 
you know, to be successful in their environment. Um, and, and that's something that we're, we're so specialized. Yeah. And also, I mean, I've seen, I've seen some, some criticisms by some kind of modern philosophers saying that, um, that as a, as a generation, um, you know, uh, the, the rich industrialized Western people, you know, as, as a generation, we are putting too much of our knowledge and too much of our memories and, uh, I don't know, we're putting too much, let's say, thinking onto external devices. Like, you know, when we want to know something, we look at, we Google it, you know, we save our pictures in the cloud and, you know, maybe all of this stuff is so vulnerable to just being lost and then without it, maybe we're, we're kind of externalizing too much of our culture. Yes, I mean, this is the extended mind hypothesis, and I think there's uh, some truth into it that we store, we do offload our memory onto uh, technology. You know, some experiments show that oral cultures, that they people tend to remember more complex stories longer and better. I mean, if you tell, there's, there still is the fact, you know, in terms of working memory, short term, you know, uh, George Miller showed that... Um, we really can't remember much more than seven things. You know, it's, he did this research for the telephone, you know, for, for Bell Telephone. And that's why they started putting the area code in parentheses. So they have a four digit number and then a three digit number, which is separate. So you learned a three digit and a four digit thing instead of a seven digit thing, because you'd probably forget it. But even so, you know, if you tell somebody your phone number, they can't, they have to they have to ask you like two or three times to get those seven numbers it's people aren't used to just hearing it and writing it down or hearing it and remembering it uh, without writing it down and and so these are skills that have to be developed it's just like if you are you know if you're blind you pay more attention to the input from your other senses uh, at least i'm told never having been blind but if you um if you don't write your language, you're going to have to pay attention to the non-visual channel. I mean, writing is also an offloading of our oral oral language to a visual channel, and that's sign language does that too. So all of our senses are available to us, but when we, when we offload our memory uh, responsibilities to technology, then we are you know, unless we're remembering other things, which I don't know that we are, uh, we are failing to exercise our our brains. Mm. So, because uh, you, you talked a little bit about the possibility, well, the remote possibility that that the Pedaha could um, could come and come in contact with, you know, a, a, a virus or an infection from from outside, um, and you know, when it comes to something like a virus. You know, there's sort of clear steps in order to protect the people. But I'm wondering about what what do you think is the best way to to protect the extinction of languages? Well, uh, the pessimistic uh, perspective, which I have on eyes, is that there's really nothing you can do because because economics is drive everything, and as it always has in the Western world, it is going to it is going to be this way around the world. So that, you know, if you find valuable minerals on the Pitaha's land, if somebody does, um, that's the end of them. They are going to be lost because no law will protect them if there's a lot of wealth on their land. We see that even in in the United States, you know, uh, American uh, Native peoples, First Nations of the United States are protesting constantly about pipelines and exploitation of minerals on their land and um, this is not going to avail them of much because economics is the most powerful force so on the one hand i'm very pessimistic i think most of these languages will be gone in a in a generation on the other hand there are some things you can do and that is to um, not wall them off but protect their lands to the degree that they want their lands protected i mean i can't tell some I, nobody has the right to tell one society or culture that they should not have contact with the outside world that their children should not learn the national language that they should not take jobs in the cities i mean if you can talk to them perhaps if they want to hear your advice you can talk to them about the dangers in that and how they might be exploit exploited 
as a people, but ultimately you can prevent outside people from going in. You can help them learn more about the world so that they can make their choices. But um, the, for example, the Pitahas were always asking me for motorboats because I had a motorboat. You know, it's not as much work to, to ride a couple of days in a motorboat as it is to paddle for a couple of days in a canoe. So they naturally wanted to avail themselves of this. And I tried to explain to them that it wouldn't do any good for me to buy them a motorboat because they wouldn't be able to purchase the gasoline. They wouldn't be able to repair the motor. It doesn't fit into their culture. This didn't make them happy at first, but eventually the Brazilian Indian agency through a particular individual got them a bunch of motorboats. And uh, they were happy as they could be, you know, while he was providing the gasoline from the government. Actually, it was diesel fuel. It was a different kind of motor. But uh, uh, eventually he, he left. And the purpose that he had had for introducing these boats to them to get their support for something uh, was gone. So he stopped buying the fuel. So now if you ride down that way, you'll see on, along their river, you'll see these sunken motorboats in different places because they're useless to them. And, and so this could be a motive for them to go out of the village to get jobs so that they can buy these sorts of things. This has certainly motivated a lot of people to leave their culture and leave their language and become more uh, in, uh, inculturated into the national culture. But for the Pitahas still, the pull of their own culture and language has been too strong. So no Pitaha, in spite of all of this, has ever left the village to, to live permanently uh, in the city. It seemed like you were putting geography at the top of, of, of the list of important ways to protect the language. And I'm wondering, you know, is that, is that, is that right? Like, is, is geographical s separation kind of one of the key things you can do to protect these languages? Well, for the kinds of languages I work on, yes, it's not going to be um, f feasible for Galician uh, because you, know, you can't put a wall in, in Spain to keep the Galician speakers on one side. But, uh, you know, for hunter-gatherers, um, you're not talking about a wall either. You're simply saying that uh, entry into their areas has to be better protected. And so I think it's very important in terms of uh, if you take a more, you know, like Portuguese, um, Portuguese is, depending on the count, the fifth fifth most widely spoken language in the world. Uh, is that language going to disappear? No, everybody everybody who speaks, there's so many people who speak Portuguese, um, but it's not the language it once was. It used to be the trade language of the world. You know, when Portugal under Henry the Navigator was sailing all around the world, Portu the Portuguese kings were some of the most powerful and Portugal, Portuguese language was the language of trade. And, and then after that came French and uh, other languages, uh, you know, before that was uh, Greek and then Latin and uh, Portuguese, French, uh, English for now could be Mandarin in the future. Um, English almost died out, you know, in the 12th century, the English language was highly endangered and uh, because of the French rule and we were, uh, basically losing English to French, and our language was forever changed. You know, we went from being German to being a pidgin language, just a cross between French and German and, and some other things, you know, so it's a very, very uh, bizarre situation that such, you know, but now, of course, English is, is the flavor of the month, uh, but it's economics that determines these sorts of things. Yeah, I mean, that's, that, that, well, I mean, I, honestly, I never thought about it in, in such stark terms, but it do, there does seem to be a very strong correlation. So, so, so what about perhaps um, a language that has a small number of speakers, but, you know, they're in, a, they're in a, a big city or they're near a big city, so they're often in contact with speakers of, of, of a majority language. What, what can they do to, to try and help the language to survive for generations? Is it a question of, you know, doing what you said before, like, you know, maybe, maybe we do have to force people to speak it. You know, maybe we have to be aggressively, you know, forceful. Yeah, you can try that. You can have classes, uh, but these things don't tend to work <clears throat> very much. I mean, the reverse was used in Brazil by some Salesian missionaries who still today uh, in the villages in which they work, prevent, prohibit uh, the indigenous peoples from speaking their own languages. I talked to a priest 
who said uh, very proudly that every time he heard somebody speaking an indigenous language in his mission, he hit him right in the mouth to remind them that th that's not good for them to speak their language. Well, when you're constantly running down their language and tell them that God doesn't speak that language and he's not interested in it uh, and that nobody else cares about it either, well, that can, that can have negative effects. If you're trying to tell people they have to speak their language when they see that all the radio stations and television stations are in another language and uh, the jobs are not in their language, you can try, you can make it available to them, you can talk to them about pride and the preservation of knowledge and carrying on their parents' traditions, but in my experience and reading, I just don't, you know, people give their lives to this sort of thing, so I don't want to denigrate what they're doing, but I don't think it's effective in the long run. You know, I don't know about any research about this subject, but, you know, my instinct viewing the way that, well, actually viewing the way that even really keen adult learners fail to to sustain the motivation to, to learn English, which is something that they might really need for work or really need for travel or whatever. Um, you know, I think it's probably the same difficulty uh, that you encounter, which is just that, you know, language is really hard. And if you don't have an actual use for it, then then it's 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 a lot of effort for kind of nothing. So maybe maybe it's about creating use, you know, creating necessity. Well, Jean Piaget talked about our first language acquisition as being important and very different than second language acquisition because in our first language, we're constructing our identity. We are determining who we are as a person when we, when we speak this and enter into the community of our, our parents. And, and I think that learning a second language, you know, for me, the biggest motivation to learning Portuguese and Pidaha was to acquire new identities, to be seen as a Brazilian, to be seen as a Pidaha. Those are kind of unrealistic goals because, I mean, I don't look like a Pidaha any more than an apple looks like a cucumber. <laughs> but, um, but, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm doing my best to... Uh, to identify with them because it, they were a very important part of my life. So that was a huge motivation. My life goals depended on me learning that language. And Portuguese, I just also, my life goals depended on me becoming as Brazilian as possible. So I took great satisfaction from that. But for most people, that's those motivations aren't so strong. You know, if you're a businessman and you're, and you're um, you know, speaking Portuguese, living in the United States, um, you can hire someone as a translator, but you know that it just makes you look inferior and, and everybody knows that, you know, to make money, you've got to speak English. So the motivation is there. On the other hand, an American businessman in Brazil will use a translator and rarely will learn Portuguese because they speak the language, you know, that everybody currently wants. Uh, so the motivation, even though they're businessmen in each other's countries, the motivation is highly um, biased towards learning English and not learning Portuguese. Now I, can, now I can see why you feel kind of a little bit pessimistic about the future of, let's say, potentially thousands of these smaller languages. Yeah, I, I think that linguists have taken on a challenge to try to preserve them, but these languages are not like uh, endangered animals. I mean, it's not like we're trying to save a bird species when we're trying to save a language. Um, because the languages are spoken by intelligent creatures who have their own motives and their own intentions and their own goals for life. And the, the actions of trying to preserve their language, most of the time are going to be weaker than the individual's own values, which will be to learn the other language. And it's going to be very difficult. Community pride is a good motivation. You see people, languages around the world, where people are trying to revive their languages. But the only one that's been, you know, genuinely successful that I know of is, um, is Hebrew, modern Hebrew, which is not the same as ancient Hebrew, but, you know. And we also had, for many years, we had Latin preserved in the Mass. Uh, so I suppose, you know, priests could probably talk to each other in Latin. I don't know if that's true or not. Uh, but, you know, with, with the absence of Latin from the Mass, what's the motivation? I don't, I don't know 
how many you know priests probably have to take Latin. I had to take Koine Greek uh, to be able to translate the New Testament, and I still like the fact that I can, you know, pick up the New Testament in Greek. And uh, although I've lost a lot of the vocabulary because I don't read Greek every day, you know, I, I don't know, any, I don't have any native speaker friends of Koine Greek, which hasn't been spoken for over a thousand years. So, so the languages, you know, the languages were very important. You know, Jesus didn't speak Hebrew; he spoke Aramaic because that was the language. Uh, spoken at the time in in uh, Israel. Yeah, I mean, I think because because I've actually been working on a a video about the history of English teaching methods, and when, when you look through the history when you when you look through the history of English teaching methods, um, it, it's kind of obvious how the methods that were used reflected the needs of the people at that time. So, you know, when when you go back far enough in history to people like uh, Cleopatra. And there was a there was a, a Greek uh, emperor called Mithridates, um, and he, you know, they spoke multiple languages because they were rulers of various kingdoms that spoke these languages. Um, and then after that, it moved it moved towards you know the classical period where people were trying to you know do stuff like translate texts into Latin and Greek. So, you know, they focused on methods that were that were about those skills and. You know, so it seems like maybe you could say it's pessimistic, maybe you could say it's realistic, but you know, in, in today's modern world, you know, the way we're all connected and the way the way we live, maybe we just don't have a need for seven thousand different languages. Well, yes, I mean, and it depends on how you define need. There are various needs and there are various values and they're ranked, you know. So if you take economics and say that's a value, okay, so it's a value to, to thrive economically in the world and you say it's a value to maintain your heritage. <clears throat> but which one is ranked the highest? If maintaining your heritage is ranked higher than economics, you're willing to take a lower wage and do something more traditional to maintain your heritage. But if economics is a higher value than heritage, well, you're gonna, your heritage is going to suffer as a result of it. And, um, you know, everybody is after greater comfort. You know, everybody wants to have as much leisure as they can. When I say everybody, I'm obviously overgeneralizing, but most people want to have leisure. They don't want to work hard from morning till night. And, and they want to have technology. They want to listen to music. They want to play video games. Not me, but a lot of people do. I'd like to think they want to buy books and contemplate philosophy, but that's just not the way it works. You know, they, and so, so the values are going to be skewed in favor of the economics almost in every case. And if you're trying to teach people to read and write a language that's disappearing, there's got to be a huge value. Obviously the people who migrated to Israel, uh, after the Second World War, had a huge motivation for identifying themselves as Jews and no longer as Germans and Polish and um, uh, other nationalities. The diaspora, as it returned back to Israel, uh, people sought their traditional identity in a way that just about no other culture has experienced in, in human history. Um, so there was a motivation that was unique in the history of the world, and it paid off in these, you know, through the story of modern Hebrew is an amazing story. But one of the reasons it's amazing is because it's so rare, it's unique. So we've, I mean, we've, we've been talking a lot about the idea of either, either, you know, reincarnating or saving existing languages. But, um, I mean, the, the, the reality is that more than more than 50% of the world's population already speaks multiple languages. In fact, you know, like being being monolingual is is not the 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 the, the majority situation. And you know, with with you know, you and I, we've in this series, we've talked a lot about how um, how learning another language, you know, helps you to understand other cultures and broadens your mind in in, in multiple ways. So what, what do you think are some ways that maybe we could convince some, you know, th this massive percentage of, you know, monolingual Australians and monolingual British people, monolingual Americans to, to take up the, the you know, the, the hard work of learning another language? Well, it's not going to happen because it's virtuous. I mean, they're not going to do it to, um, they're not going to do it just to become, um, you know, better citizens of the world and sort you know, or altruistically or anything like that. I mean, 
you and I have learned other languages because it's to our economic advantage to do uh, even though my initial, you know, I didn't think of it in those terms when I did it, but in fact, that was a large part of it. If you live in Europe, there's, there are good careers to be had by speaking multiple languages in a, where you have all of these very strong cultures, economically uh, strong. And so if you want to um, be in the European Parliament, you know, it helps to speak other languages. If you want to be you know, a successful personality in, in, in Europe or a successful businessman, you've got to have access to the knowledge of these cultures through their languages. So there's strong motivation there. But if you live in Australia, you know, and or Kansas in the U.S. or some state that has very small number of Spanish speakers or other language speakers, you know, I mean, he probably will have a lot of Mexican farm laborers, and so some Spanish would be would be good. But he's not going to learn Chinese just because he wants access to the um, rich cultural traditions of China. <laughs> well, well, actually, I I I, I know a guy um, who just married a Brazilian uh, girl, and they have a baby together, and they're trying to raise the baby bilingual because they live in Australia. And, and he said to me that um, one, of the, one of the most difficult aspects for him of learning Brazilian, you know, coming from the point of view of, of, a, of an English speaker, is that he finds it really difficult to just find content to consume that's written in Portuguese. Yes, I mean, there is plenty of content. I mean, I, I learned a lot of Portuguese by watching Brazilian television and living in Brazil. And I tell people, if you want to learn a language... You need to live in a community of speakers. If you don't need the language, you won't learn it. He might need it with, you know, to talk to his wife, but if her English is good, he doesn't need it so much. Um, he might need it to make her happy and show her that he loves her, but that, that ought to be plenty of motivation, but it probably isn't. You know, so, so if you're not living surrounded by Brazilians, you know, when, when I arrived in Brazil, I... Um, took my family off the missionary compound and we moved into a small little Brazilian neighborhood uh, where, and I used to pay people to come by and talk to me in Portuguese. That was their only job was to come by and talk to me for an hour. And I paid them for that only if they corrected me, if they didn't correct me, I did. I said, I won't pay you if you don't correct me. That was important because I, I needed Portuguese to survive. If I, if I didn't learn Portuguese, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't do anything. Uh, in the society. So it was a huge motivation. But if I were living in California and I had a girlfriend who was Brazilian, I don't think that would get me through Portuguese. I'd probably just try to use Spanish if I knew that. And if I didn't know that, you know, I would give her English lessons. No, there's, there's, there's a saying among English teachers that um, the two best places to learn the language are in the classroom or in the bedroom. Yes. Yeah, but in the bedroom, you need a much more limited vocabulary. Um, <laughs> True that. So, 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 so it's like, um, you know, I had people visit us among the Pitaha when I was a missionary there, and they would see me struggling to learn the language. And one guy said, I just don't understand why you don't teach them English. Wouldn't that be a lot faster? Just teach them English and give them the Bible in English. I said, you know, if it's hard for me to learn Peter Ha, I'm just one guy and I've, had a, I've got a PhD in, in linguistics. Uh, how hard would it be for this whole village to learn English? And then what would the purpose of it be? It, you know, the whole motivation for me is that, is that people need to be communicated with in their native tongue for the communication to be effective. Language is hard. I mean, it's it's the hardest thing we ever learn uh, is our native language and or any other language. Languages are just hard. <clears throat> it would be nice if Chomsky's statement that they're basically all the same language with little word differences were true. But in fact, the vast amount of culture that has to be acquired at the same time as you learn the language, knowing not just what something means, but what situation it's appropriate in. It, it is so complicated. The idea that um, that people are going to learn to speak their native language and preserve it because it feels good, um, I, I like the I like the idea, but it's not going to happen. Yeah, I mean, one one sort of insight that I've had recently, uh, just talking to some people who specialize in research about bilingualism and 
um, uh, what interlanguaging multi uh, multilingualism is that if you speak more than one language, it's actually okay and it's actually fine and it's actually normal if you if one or more of your languages is actually kind of weak, you know, and you can't do a lot of things in in your second language. Like maybe in your second language, the only thing you can do is order a coffee, but but that's okay because at least it's something and. I'm wondering if if maybe that's a good approach to for adults, you know, rather than saying, look, it's really, really hard, but you know what, it's okay if you just order a coffee, that's something. Yeah, I mean, if, you know, I lived in Germany for a year and I worked at the Max Planck uh, Institute for Evolutionary Anthropology in Leipzig and they um, provided an English environment and they provided such assistance that their their goal was so I just had to work. I didn't have to worry about learning German. So if I were taken back to German right now, um, and I could drink all the beer I want because I can order beer, but I'd, I'd struggle with a lot of other stuff. But, but on the other hand, it's very important. I, I agree with that. I think, you know, something's better than nothing. You need to learn, make some effort to show them that you're people that you're trying because you know if you don't even show people any interest in their language if you're traveling you're not showing them that they're important to you so like i tell people who are you know business people who are saying well i'm going to go to china but i don't need to learn chinese because everybody speaks english and i said yeah i said if if you had to deal with a chinese business person living in the u.s who only spoke to you through a translator how close would that make you feel to that person how how well would you think you knew them and wouldn't it be a great compliment to you if they were making this effort to learn English? We, we may not be able to master completely another language, but we can certainly make an effort to communicate somehow, some little bit in that language. Um, I, I don't know if you saw maybe in the news recently uh, about Elon Musk and his comment about languages. Did you see that? Oh yeah, that they're gonna, we're not gonna need them. Yeah, within five years they'll be obsolete. Yeah, yeah, that's stupid. You know, there's nothing to say about that. That's an ignorant remark. Uh, it's like saying in five years we won't need feet. <laughs> well, obviously the the backlash was was pretty intense uh, from well not not just from from linguists but from basically from from most people on the planet who who saw the ridiculousness of that yeah, yeah. of that comment. But you know, the reason he said it is because he's he's got this company called New. Neuralink and you know they're working on an interface a direct interface between um you know devices and the brain and and I'm wondering I'm wondering like on a social level what is that going to be like for you to be kind of maybe just standing in front of someone and and transmitting thoughts almost telepathically I mean isn't that kind of creepy it takes a great deal of focus, you know, so, you know, yeah, it's very creepy. I mean, most of the thoughts that go through my brain are filthy. So um, I wouldn't want people to know these things. Um, they're, you know, I'm, I'm telling totally inappropriate jokes to myself the whole time I'm talking to somebody. So I would not want them to know. This, this is a good point, actually. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, all the politically incorrect trash that goes through our brains. You know, I, I used to tell um, when I was a dean and, and, I would tell faculty, I said, you know, you can't always control what goes through your brain, but I can control what comes out your mouth. So, so how, you know, you've got to, there's so many things to think about what's, you know, um, we communicate with our bodies, not with our brains. So it's the gestures. What do the gestures mean? What do the facial expressions mean? Language is so much more than just word grammar. This is the computational view of language, which is just, just silly. I mean, uh, so Elon Musk, you know, he's 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 got a lot of uh, wacko ideas and some of them really off. You need somebody to just spew out ideas like this. But uh, but nobody needs to think that in in five years we can just wear helmets and everybody will uh, know what everybody else is thinking. That's never going to happen. You know, the, the layperson would would kind of say, well, you know, Google Translate's pretty good. And so I can imagine that in 10 years... I'll just kind of put a little thing in my ear and I can say whatever I want and then it will be translated, you know, into your ear. But but as you said, it's like, it's not just words, right? Because it's uh, the words that are appropriate for that culture. 
um, and the gestures and, and everything. Like, yeah. There's also the fact that in our brains, there are no words, right? Um, they come out of our mouth as words, but in our brains, they're neuronal firings. You know, it's electricity and chemistry in our brains. There's no words, there's no tree structures, there's no sentences in our brain. Um, and so people who say, you know, the brain has, uh, has uh, these relationships among words as tree. You know, I, I reviewed a book uh, years ago called The Language Organ, and, and they said they were studying the brain. I said, you know, if you were really studying the brain, you would be able to see syntactic tree structures and CAT scans, but you can't see those because they're not there. These, these are constructs that enable, they're, they're what Peirce would call icons to help us talk about properties of the brain that are actually in a very different form. So a tree structure corresponds to things we might know in the brain, but we don't know how we know it. We know so little about language. Evelina Fedorenko's work is the most advanced there is, and she can basically tell us where uh, things are found in the brain, but nobody can tell us what does John sees Mary look like exactly in the brain. Nobody knows this. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It seems, um, well, it's just too much of an, an abstraction. Um, and in fact, I remember when she was telling me about how some people store language on one side of their brain and others on the other, and some people store language in, in both hemispheres. And I mean, that's pretty, that's pretty insane when you think about it. Yeah, I mean, those people probably have an advantage. Uh, they can take damage to one side of their brain and still maintain their language intact. You know, children can can move it around if they get damage to the to what she has called the language network prior to learning the language. They'll still be able to learn their language, but if you learn, if you suffer damage to that network after you've learned your language, then a lot of it is lost because now we've. You know, our brain is plastic and it loses it loses a certain degree of plasticity over time all learning is a form of brain plasticity but but once something is learned there's less plasticity there uh, in most cases um, so these are science fiction ideas that have been around for a long time Elon Musk is not the first person to say this mental telepathy has been a popular concept for a long time and and yet we don't even know what that would be. Nobody knows what that would entail and how you would keep the bad thoughts out and only have the good thoughts in, you know, it's just, it's highly unlikely. It's, it's so funny because when, when, when I, when I read the idea of, about his device, it never occurred to me that of course, how would you filter out all of the stuff that you don't want to say, but is still crossing your mind? Yeah, it's a, it's a problem. There's also the fact that, um, you know, if somebody's talking to you, you could be thinking about uh, the last movie you saw and just nodding and saying, uh-huh. You know, you, you, we don't listen that well and we say things that aren't connected that well and we, we use a lot of scripts. We just, we hear word X and so we say sentence Y. There's no real thought going on there. It's like a knee-jerk reaction. It's like a physical reflex action. So, you know, a lot of language doesn't take a lot of thought. Um, I would have to know what he thinks language is. Um, what he thinks he's trying to do. And I, I, I suspect that after five years, we're going to be no closer than we are. We were a hundred years ago to this. Just, just to finish up. Um, well, at the beginning, you said you were kind of pessimistic about perhaps the future of, of a majority of, of, of the languages in the world. But if, if you were to, to, to write an argument, you know, if you were to sit down and, and try and explain why, why we should, if it's possible, save them. What what would you say? Well, I would say that what I've already said that is languages are people's identity. It's what makes them unique from other people, distinct from. So the Pitahas, if they lose their language, they're no longer Pitahas. They're they're Brazilians, and they're not Brazilians at the highest rung of the Brazilian social ladder. They're Brazilians at the lowest rung. So right now, they're, they're, they have great autonomy and self-worth and confidence as a culture take away their language, and they're dependent on another culture, and they enter that culture at the bottom rung. And, and the history of, of indigenous peoples of Brazil who so for example the the Salesian missionaries um, trained uh, lots of uh, 
and and not just the Salesians in the past, it's been many missionaries who've, who've made prohibited the use of indigenous languages, made people learn Portuguese, given them skills and think that now they're going to be a lot better off. They don't have to live in the jungle. They've got skills in the city. So at one time it was estimated that, you know, these families that moved to Manaus, a lot of them moved to Manaus, that, um, you know, th there were like 10,000 estimated uh, prostitutes in Manaus who were women from these indigenous communities who couldn't find work sewing. They couldn't get the job because they were indigenous and, and nobody wanted to hire them. And they were out of their villages now and they had nothing else to turn to. The, the people, the guys who came down was, with mechanical skills, learning how to repair outboard motors and carpentry that would have been quite valuable. There's still the races that keeps them at the bottom. So losing their language and losing their cultural autonomy was disastrous for them and led to horrible uh, consequences. This has been the case throughout the world, wherever indigenous people have had to learn uh, languages against their will and, and, uh, and, and, and then be relegated from the top of their own social ladder to the bottom of somebody else's social ladder. So, so that's one reason to allow people to keep their languages for as long as they want to. And they often want to learn Portuguese, for example, in Brazil without knowing what those consequences are. You know, they, they've never had that much contact with Brazilians, so they don't realize you know, what racism is all about. And there's racism in every country, every group has, has some sort of, of racism, putting other groups down. Uh, so, this, you know, American in, uh, indigenous peoples in the United States have, you know, one of the saddest histories in the world, you know, one of the greatest forms of ethnocide, genocide in, in world history from uh, U.S. presidents, uh, Andrew Jackson, uh, you know, just everybody. So um, learning languages, keeping languages is important for their cultural integrity and their well-being. It's also important for us because of the things that it preserves of the world and the way the world can be classified and the factual knowledge of, of all their environment that we would lose if we lost that language. So there are a lot of very compelling reasons to to defend uh, the autonomy of indigenous groups and the preservation of their languages. Those are values. Those values tend to be far lower on the totem pole of values than economics. And even the people that come from those groups are willing to undergo uh, the racism very often in order to uh, have a refrigerator. So these are you know, as bizarre as it sounds to us, um, you know, I'm not willing to give up my refrigerator just now either. So, so these are, uh, you know, these sound like they're giving away their, their heritage for, um, for trinkets. There's a story in the Bible about Jacob and Esau, and Jake, Esau was the firstborn, and Jacob wanted all of his benefits, and so he tricked him into signing them away because Esau was very... Um, very hungry, and Jacob had a pot of lentils, and so he traded away the, this expression. He traded away his heritage for a pot of lentils. This is very often what happens when people make the decision to give up their language and learn the language of the dominant culture. It's very unfortunate, but once it's done, it's done. Yeah, I've 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 had some some really interesting conversations recently that have um, that have kind of shown me the importance of language in in creating your, your your identity but but also um i think uh, for me and a new thing that i've learned is also how how your this identity how the language you speak can also create trust or even or, or on, on the other hand can actually break trust so like you know when when you present yourself to a community with a specific accent, for example, you know, using specific vocabulary, you're either including yourself or excluding yourself in that group when you when you try to enter it. Yes, I mean that's the whole. That's one of the primary motivating factors be behind the entire field of sociolinguistics. You see that people judge you based on how how you speak. Um, Southern dialect in the United States is seen as stupid. Uh, Manhattan as dialect is seen as elitist. Uh, California dialect is seen as fairly vanilla. Basically, language is this phenomenal uh, nexus of culture and grammar and 
semiotics and it's so complicated and 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 so engaged with who we are with our identity this identity that we've constructed that we don't survive well without it especially those of us who've learned a language if we were forced to start speaking another language right now and never be able to use our native language which is the case of many people in the world uh, it would be it would be devastating to our psyche Thank you.